You're listening to TIP. In this episode, I chat with Mike Rankovich about building and investing in online businesses, including FBA businesses, niche sites, content sites, e-commerce, and more. Mike is a founding partner and managing director of Empire Flippers Capital and part of Empire Flippers, the world's leading marketplace for buying and selling profitable online businesses. This world of online business has been absolutely fascinating to me for a long time. I've been diving in deep, reading and listening to everything I can about the online business world. I do love stock investing and real estate investing, which is what this podcast is mainly about, but I realized that I needed, or at least wanted, more money to put to work in the stock market or to buy real estate deals. In my search for making more money, I found the world of online business, and it's had my attention for quite some time now. So I hope you guys enjoy this look into the world of online business. If you have any questions after the episode, feel free to reach out to Mike through Empire Flippers or to me on Twitter. I'm happy to answer any questions for y'all that I can. Now, without further delay, let's get into this week's episode. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard, Patrick Donnelly, and Kyle Grieve, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I am joined by Mike Vrankovich. Mike, welcome to the show. Hi, Robert. Thanks for having me on. Before we get into a more detailed part of the conversation, I'd like to define or explain some of the items that we're going to be talking about today, because just a year ago, I had no idea what any of this stuff was. Like, I've actually had guests like you reach out to come on the show and I actually turned them down as guests, because not because their story wasn't interesting, but I didn't really understand what they wanted to talk about. I, I didn't get it. And uh, fast forward a year to where we are today. I understand it now. I'm actually involved in this business model myself. I've built and sold some websites. So I actually have a bit of understanding now. But before, I, I had no idea. And I'm sure the audience is in a similar boat to where I was. So I want to start there, start maybe define a couple important concepts that people need to have an understanding of as we go throughout this conversation. So to start out, what is a content site or a niche site and how does that business model work? Basically, a content site or a niche site is a popular website that oftentimes receives the majority of its traffic from Google. And the way it makes money is with affiliate links or ads. So one of the popular examples many readers might be familiar with would be New York Times's Wirecutter. You, you go to the site, you see reviews for different types of products. Let's say best carry-on luggages. They review the top five carry-on luggages. And the way that website or that business makes money is if somebody clicks on a link and they go to Amazon or they go somewhere else and they buy that luggage, that website will, will, will get a certain fee. And so you say popular sites, they get traffic from Google. What, what does that mean? What does traffic from Google mean? And how does that happen? How does somebody build a site that gets traffic from Google? When I say gets traffic from Google, what, what I really mean is most of the visitors to the website, they didn't type domain or the name of the website into their search bar and find it that way. Let's go back to my luggage example. Let's say I was, I was looking to buy a new carry-on luggage for traveling. I would go to Google, start there and say best carry-on luggages or lightweight carry-on luggages or expandable carry-on luggages. I would see a number of results. 
And maybe one of the first results I would see is this review site reviewing different types of luggages. So prior to me visiting that website, I might have never heard of it. And then I land on that site, read their content, and maybe click a click an ad or, or click a link. So a couple of years ago, I had some side projects that were not niche sites. They, they were just totally unrelated, like little side hustles, side projects that I had. And I would create the websites and for these little projects that I had. And I would go to Google and I'd search like very specific, the name of what I was trying to do wouldn't even show up. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, I don't get this. And I honestly didn't spend a lot of time to dive into it and figure out what was going on. But fast forward three, four, five years later to where we are now. And I'm like, oh my God, like I understand like everything that I was missing. So for people who are wondering, like, okay, I get somebody will search something, these websites show up, but like how does somebody create a website and actually get their website to show up in those SERPs is what we'll we'll talk about. The search engine result pages, how do they get them to actually show up in Google? Google, as you'd expect, has a has a complex algorithm and it'll look at websites that it considers trusted and relevant based on what you're searching for. So of course, if it has whatever keyword or whatever phrase you searched for multiple times in their page, that'll help. However, another major ranking factor, another factor uh, that determines which site is at the top and which site might be on page 50 is if other sites link to it as well. So going back to that wire cutter luggage example, if it's a really well-written article that a lot of other websites are linking to, Google will see that as a signal and say, hey, this is a really good site. It has high authority. A lot of other people are linking to it. We're going to move this up in the results. So that's a really oversimplified version of it. And I know another topic we'll probably hit on throughout like the types of businesses that you invest in with your fund and, and what you guys are doing with, with WebStreet, but it is FBA businesses. Explain what an FBA business is and how that business model works. An Amazon FBA business is investing in the business that owns the product being sold on Amazon. So what most people don't realize, majority of the products, probably somewhere around 60 to 70% being sold on Amazon, those are private label brands. So those are anything from small to medium individual businesses, contract manufacturing these products and selling them on Amazon. Now, of course, there's some very big brands as well. But most of the sales on Amazon are coming from third-party sellers. Amazon will uh, warehouse the products. It'll, it'll handle the payment processing, the returns, the customer service, and all of that. But the actual brand owner behind the product, that's an Amazon FBA business. That's what one of the monetizations or one of the business models that we, that we look at closely. And FBA, for those listening, stands for Fulfillment by Amazon, which is exactly what Mike was just saying is here is you have your products. And Rather than you, you know, you hear these stories of guys who just start companies and they might be packing their deodorant in their living room and then shipping it out. Rather than doing it that way, you could send all your product to Amazon. They handle kind of all the logistics for you, kind of like a 3PL in a sense. So that's what FBA by Amazon is or, or FBA business is. Now, the next thing I want to talk about, Mike, is I want you to tell us a bit about some of the biggest players in the industry, such as Red Ventures. That's just one I'm familiar with. And I, I want to talk about this real quick because I think hearing about the size and the scale of some of these operations can really provide legitimacy to this idea of, of these types of online businesses like content sites, niche sites. Because when I first got into it, I was like, okay, you might make a couple $10, $50, $300, maybe even a couple thousand dollars. Like you might do really, really well, make a couple thousand dollars. And then I started hearing about some of these guys that are, are at the scale and, and size of Red Ventures and even smaller than them still, but very successful. So 
talk to us a little bit about about companies like Red Ventures and give us some put some legitimacy to this idea of a business. Red Ventures is one of the bigger players in the space. They basically own a whole bunch of content types of sites. Like we talked about, they're they're a big company. They have about 4,000 employees, lots of readers every month, and they've purchased some really big properties that are that a lot of people might be familiar with. So they've bought uh, CNET, which is a uh, a website that does all kinds of reviews, all types of news for half a billion dollars for five hundred million dollars. A couple of years ago, they also own uh, Bankrate, which they paid over a billion dollars for, and they own a whole bunch of brands that people might be familiar with, Healthline and multiple other brands. So, and and they they have the exact same business model as these content sites that we've talked about. So they create content that people are searching for, and then they make money with affiliate links and advertising. What's interesting, or it was at least interesting for me, is that I didn't realize the breadth, I guess, of the, how this business model works. Like. Once I understood the business model, I started seeing them everywhere. I was like, Credit Karma. Credit Karma is essentially a content site or a niche site. Like their niche is finance and credit scores specifically. And they make money by, you know, all the affiliates that they have. When if you're a user of Credit Karma, you go in there, you get ads for credit cards and personal loans and auto loans, and they get a fee for every time you click that. That's how they provide their service for free. They get you into their website, they get users, try to get as many users as they can using the product, and then they give you these affiliate ads and they make money money that way. And then even it goes to the side of like free applications, like free free mobile apps. Like you go in there and your mobile app, whether it's a game or something else that has ads, that's essentially what a niche site is. Like you're trying to get as many users as you can to your site. That's what these apps are doing. They're trying to get as many people to the apps as they can and they just show you display ads. And it's it was really mind blowing to me when I learned about this business model and just how widespread or how wide reaching it it really is. Yeah, it's definitely fascinating. Before before getting in this industry, I mean, when I when I used to browse the internet, I had one of those ad blockers on. So for a long time, I didn't see any of these display ads. And then when I when I started working in the industry, I turned all of that stuff off. But but it, it, exactly like you said, it's it's eye opening now when you're on different websites going about your day, you start looking at the business model behind those websites. You're like, ah, this is how they make money. This is the service that I use. This actually makes sense. This is what they're doing. Yeah, and you don't realize the scale of them either. It's pretty interesting. It's, it's actually really, really interesting. It's been something people listening to the show ha- know. I've been haven't been hosting for a little bit. You know, I just came back to hosting the show, and I've been really involved in this part of the, like online business for the last year. I've been really diving in and learning as much as I can. It's really, really fascinating to me. Uh, you mentioned ad blockers. How much of a concern for online businesses like this is or are ad blockers? They would typically block affiliate ads, but they wouldn't block inline content. If we go back to the same example where you're looking at, at a different luggage reviews, those would be inside the content with links. But if there's an ad on the side of it, that ad would probably get uh, get blocked. They've been around a, a long time. They're they're built into some browsers, so it's uh, it's it's nothing new. It's something that's been around for quite quite some time. So they do block display ads, but you're probably okay from the affiliate side of things. Correct. De- depending what type of affiliate ad you have, but but that, that's that's correct. Ad blockers, maybe not too, too big of a deal, but one of the existential threats, maybe, so depending on what people think, uh, is facing this business model right now, and that's AI, and specifically Google's SGE. You know, like I said, some people aren't too worried about it. Others are really worried about it. 
I'm curious how you see this impacting these business models that we've been talking about, specifically niche sites, content sites, affiliate sites, maybe not so much the FBA businesses, but content niche sites and affiliates. And then also explain what Google's SGE is for people who don't know. In short, I, I, I think it's going to absolutely destroy low quality content sites. Great example of a low quality content site. For example, I've been, I started uh, doing more cooking lately again. And one of the things that I searched for is how long do I bake chicken in the oven for? And if you, if you go through the results, you'll notice a bunch of really crappy sites. So you go to the site and all you're trying to find is the answer, whatever it is, 20 minutes at this many Fahrenheit or Celsius or whatever the answer is. But you're reading all this crappily written content. You're seeing ads everywhere. You're seeing images that are completely irrelevant for you. They're talking about other stuff because they're trying to make the length of the article better because they're trying to game the Google algorithm. And well, that's just a really bad user experience. So what, what Google has been doing for, for years, it, it has been a little bit of a cat and mouse game with people that are building these sites and trying to get them to rank because they'll reverse engineer the Google algorithm and they'll try to get it to rank. So going back to that same example, they've realized, okay, if I have longer articles, Google will look at it as a higher authority, better quality article. So I'm just going to add all this crap content to make my articles longer. And then it, you know, a few months, a year later, Google will see a whole bunch of those articles popping up and they'll say, well, that's crap. That's clearly not what the user wants. Let's penalize those types of sites. So there's always been updates and always changes that impact content sites a lot. Now, the reason I'm using that example, let's say I started my query on ChatGPT for the same thing. How long do I bake chicken breasts in the oven? And I'm currently outside of the US. Give me an answer in Celsius. We get a really nice two-sentence answer. Now, as a result of that, Google is making more changes to its... As far as I understand, I'm definitely not an SEO expert in this, but as far as I understand, Google is making more searches to its algorithm to be competitive with ChatGPT. So that way, people don't start using ChatGPT as their first point when they look for information. That way, they're using Google. Using that same example, how long do I bake chicken for? You might see some snippets at the top of your, the Google search results, which is basically, you'll see the question and then you'll see an answer right below it. So the new round of changes that Google is planning to roll out, we'll, we'll see exactly what happens. As far as, I, as far as I know, it hasn't been fully rolled out yet. They're basically looking to do snippets and steroids. And a big thing of that, they're going to provide the source where they found the answer, but a lot of people might not be clicking on the source like we've seen with snippets currently, and they're going to provide less sources. So this is something very, very new. We're all waiting to see what happens, how it gets rolled out. But I definitely think it's going to have a, a much bigger impact on the, on the lower quality sites that are creating kind of crappy content that readers don't really have a great experience reading in the first place. And we've seen those types of sites get absolutely destroyed over the last few years, more and more and more. So for anybody looking to get into the, the content space, the big thing is like if you're buying a property or if you're building something yourself, I think you have to ask yourself, like, does this create value to the reader? Because you can do all these things to game the Google algorithm. They might work short term, but you're just an update away or, or you're just one change away from losing a lot of traffic. To your point about chicken, I have searched that many times myself, like almost that exact same query. And I didn't really think much of it years ago. But now that I'm in this world and I own these businesses, I see it the same way. And I'm like going through these articles, I usually will just click the first one. And there's like three, four, five, six, maybe 10, 12 paragraphs of all this stuff that's just like filler content. It's like, where did chickens from come from? Where are they originated? How long are they babies? Like all this stuff about chickens. 
And then at the bottom, it'll finally say, okay, cook the chicken for six minutes at 400, you know, whatever the answer is. And like, I got to scroll through all this stuff just to get there. And, you know, like you said, people are doing that to game the algorithm, the, the Google algorithm. The worst thing is when you, when you spend five, 10 minutes searching for the answer, and then you get to the answer and they tell you something like, oh yeah, stick a thermometer in it. And when it reaches this temperature, you know, you're good. And it's like, all right. If I had a thermometer in hand, I clearly wouldn't be searching for this. So Google is really good at trying to figure out if the thing that people clicked on makes them happy. One of the things that that these sites with this long content are trying to do on purpose, Google will measure how long somebody is on the page. So if they see you clicking the page and leaving in a second right away, they'll penalize that site or or not necessarily penalize it, but they'll, they'll rank it lower than they would another site where people are really enjoying the content and reading it. But that example that we just talked about, that's, that's a clear people trying to game the system and not really delivering an optimal experience. And I I think more and more of that stuff is going to go away. And to your point earlier, that is super complex. Google's algorithm is really complex. They not only know how long you're on the page, but they know, and again, this is all theory based on what people think. And there was a, a leak of basically, I think it was Russia's Google, basically their whole algorithm got leaked. So we kind of in this SEO world, we can kind of say, okay, this is what they're doing. Maybe Google's doing something similar, but to an extent, like they think Google knows that not only how long you're on the page, but if you go back to the, like if you hit the back button, go back to the search engine or results page and then click another page instead of getting your answer and, and being done, they see that as a bad thing. Or versus if you just X out of your browser after only going to your page, they said that tells Google it's a good sign because they're like, okay, he, he or she probably got their answer that they need and they're good. And, and like you said, they'll, they'll bump them up maybe in, in the algorithm. And so the SGE stuff is really interesting, which is search generative experience. And basically, like you said, what Google's doing now is rather than you searching something and then having to click on a, a search result and going to a website and finding the information, what they're doing is they're going to basically have AI answer the simple questions, like you said, about the chicken and, and some other simple things. And so now if you think about the listeners as the if you think about the incentives of these websites, they make money by the number of visitors that they have that come to the website because then they can show more ads or sell more affiliate things. And so if Google is providing a response via AI right at the top of the search engine, the users aren't going to know necessarily that that's even AI. It's just going to look like, oh, I got my answer basically without having to click on anything. And so that's going to reduce the number of people that are going to the websites that are ranked there. And that's going to reduce revenue. And so that is why I said it's kind of an existential crisis right now that's facing this business model, because a lot of people are worried that their traffic is going to go significantly down. I think it really depends on the, on the niche as well, as well as the, the quality of the content. So our fund is definitely not looking to buy any, any, res- any basic recipe sites anytime soon. But in fairness, even before all of this was more mainstream in the news a year or two ago, we weren't, we weren't buying those recipe sites as well for other reasons, because we, we realized probably a matter of time before they get penalized somehow or before they lose traffic somehow. We didn't know exactly what it would be, but we realized this is not good for the end user. This is just a temporary arbitrage between being able to get traffic easily and monetizing it. This is not, not a real business. So, and, and there's a lot of this AI stuff is in the news now. And, and for, for good reason, you know, it's going to change the world. But one important thing to keep in mind with, with content, it seems like one of these uh, 100-year floods hap- happens to happen uh, every two to three years. So Google has multiple times changed their algorithm. Way back in the day, you could, uh, whatever you had in the domain name would determine how well you rank. So going, to, uh, going back to the suitcases, if you owned bestcarryonluggage.com, you, you would be the top result for anything talking about carry-on luggage. 
And then that was no longer the case. And then there's been a whole bunch of changes to the algorithm. So it's definitely, it's definitely an ongoing thing. And the constant here is that things constantly keep changing for uh, the way traffic um, flows to these websites. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Mike has mentioned penalize or penalizations a couple times. And so what that means is Google throughout time, a couple times a year, once a year, depending on their own schedule, will come out and say, okay, we don't like that certain sites are doing this. And there's tons of different reasons as to why they'll do these. But basically, it's like Google essentially like passes their own like law, essentially, is like the way I could clarify it a little bit or, or make an analogy is like they essentially pass the law and then anybody, any site that's like, quote unquote, breaking that law, they get penalized and now they're not going to rank as high in the, the search engines. That's not that has nothing to do with AI and that's not anything new. That's been it's kind of been something you have to deal with in this business model for a while now. What are some other risks outside of just ad blockers, AI and Google updates that are associated with starting and investing in online businesses like this? I'll keep you the content because I, I think the FBA risks are significantly different, but def- definitely happy to expand on those as well. So one one thing that we haven't talked about is uh, competition. 
So let's say you have a lucrative niche. Let's say it's a larger niche that for some reason doesn't have a lot of competition. And then Red Ventures or one of Red Ventures assets decides to enter the niche. You're probably not going to have a good day simply because they have one, they have uh, domains where if you add new content to those domains, it'll probably rank really quickly and I'll outrank you. So just like any business, it's competition is, is a big thing. And then uh, the other downside with, with, I guess, both content sites and any types of online business, businesses is these are not passive assets. They require a specialized skill set to run these assets and they require quite a bit of time to run them. And oftentimes, if you're in lucrative niches or you have larger assets, you're competing with, you know, with people that have been doing this for quite some time and that do this for, for a living. So we spent some time, five, 10 minutes now talking about some of the risks and the negative sides of this. But I know there's a lot of positives. I really like this business model. I've been involved with it. Like I said, I know you're really involved with it. So what are some of the intriguing sides of this, these businesses, this asset class? And what does this asset class do better than other, maybe more traditional asset classes? The most fascinating thing from uh, an investing perspective is the multiples at which you can buy these businesses at. So especially if you focus on the relatively smaller transactions, transactions let's say 200000 to a million dollars, you could acquire one of these businesses for three to four X annual profits. And that's, that's what makes it so attractive. If you buy something for three X annual profits, and it just stays the same, in three years, you're going to recover your initial investment. Now, the difficult part is the just stays the same. But there's, of course, opportunity to grow these assets as well. People listening to the show, Mike, are mostly stock investors. Some are entrepreneurs, some are side hustlers, but most of them are stock investors. And so for the audience, what Mike is saying, like we're always looking or often looking at multiples when we're buying, making stock investments. We're looking at PE ratios, price to sales, et cetera. And, and what Mike's saying is you could buy these businesses at three times basically PE or, or less. You get two PE. So like think about that from a public equities ex- situation. Like how Imagine if you could go out there and buy a great business that you're interested in that has cash flow and you can buy at a PE of two or three. Like that's a that's a really intriguing opportunity. And like Mike said, there's some active piece to this where there isn't necessarily in the stock market. You're not gonna buy that stock and go out and run that business, but it's still the multiples that you can get as both a buyer and a seller are are interesting because on the seller side, you're getting 36 times your monthly revenue. And that you can upwards of that or more. And that can be really intriguing as a seller too. So it's this interesting dynamic between the multiples, both working for the sellers and the buyers. At least that's been, that's been my experience. Do you see that most sellers are pretty happy with the multiples, Mike? Of course, especially if you consider that a lot of these sellers are serial entrepreneurs and they take a business from, or they build it from scratch or they buy it and grow it significantly. And then they take that cash and reinvest it into other businesses and do the process all, all over again. Are those the multiples that you're seeing? Like 36 to 40 times monthly earnings? Is that roughly what you see in the marketplace? Yeah, I, I would say our our average for the acquisitions we've done, we've bought uh, 34 assets over the last couple of years. They've varied quite a bit, but I think our average has been in the mid 30s. And 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 there's there's something to be said here. Like sometimes you can pick up assets for 20x, so just under two years annual profits. And sometimes you know you need to pay up significantly for the assets for 5x. What you buy it at will, of course, return your determine your rate of investment. So if you buy something for 3x, that's 33% rate of return annually. 
But that's that's not the only thing to, to look at. You also have to look at the risk, you know, the likelihood of those earnings continuing, and oftentimes the the lower priced assets are worse. And if you think about it from a seller's perspective, if you were really confident in the ability of this business to continue making money at this level or higher, would you sell it for a year and a half worth of earnings? Now, of course, there's always exceptions, but it's important to remember those those are the exceptions. For somebody that's listening, think about this. If you have a site that makes $2,000 a month, it's really it's doing well, it's a strong brand, etc. And you could sell it for 40 times your monthly earnings. You have an asset that's only making $2,000 a month. I mean, that's good, but not you know, it's not crazy. You can sell that for $80,000. And that's the power of it as the seller. And the most exciting thing is like, let's say that this was one of your first assets that you've built, or you've built a number of these assets before. Oftentimes they'll take that 80,000 and they'll, they'll go out and build five new assets with that. And maybe three or four, they'll be able to sell, sell again. What do you see for characteristics that increase the value and the multiples that you could sell a business for? And what do you see that actually reduce the valuation and reduce the multiple you could sell it for? Yeah. So the really interesting thing with these online businesses, especially the ones in the range that I, that I talked about, is you know, if you look at a publicly traded company, if you look at a stock, the multiple that they're valued at, the multiple that they're trading at, is usually based on um, you know, how fast the business is growing. Where, where is it expected to be a few years from now? Some of that plays into play. Uh, some of that is part of uh, the way you value online businesses. But even more so than that is how likely are these earnings going to continue? So our fund would be, you know, would be happy to pay 5x annual, 60x multiple for something where we have a very high confidence that there is a, a high floor on those earnings. We're, we have a very high confidence the earnings won't go anywhere, no matter what happens with ChatGPT or any of the other risks that we talked about especially if we see opportunity to grow the business. So as you'd imagine, the longer of a track record you have, the easier it becomes to to project out what's going to happen in the future. And going back to the content sites, you can see what's happened in the past, the site, when there have been changes, how it's been impacted by competition. So generally, older businesses are worth more, all else being equal. Larger businesses uh, tend to be worth more because you get more of a... um, more of a professional buyer pool that's willing to pay more. The exception is on the very low end. If you look at businesses probably under 100 grand, uh, oftentimes those go for ridiculous multiples because they're, people are really excited to get into the space and they're willing to overpay. I would say anything that makes uh, them less risky. So earlier we talked about traffic. Let's say you have a website that doesn't receive 100% of its traffic from Google. Let's say it has an email list where it sends a newsletter and that's how it gets a lot of the traffic. Let's say that it has some social media traffic. Let's say it has an Instagram account or Facebook account or whatever, and that's where it gets some traffic. Now, and let's say Google traffic's only a third of it. Now, if something happens to Google, let's say something that none of us were projecting, let's say AI just absolutely crushes Google in the next week and we never hear of Google again, I think that's probably unlikely, but that business wouldn't go from 100 to zero. It'd probably go from 100 to 70 because it just lost one third of its traffic. And also you could say the same about revenue as well. So if you don't make 100% of your revenue from display ads, say maybe you make some from display ads, you make some from affiliates, you make some maybe from your own products, maybe you sell ads in your own newsletter, maybe you have a YouTube channel and you make some from AdSense. So like you can also increase the multiple of your business and the value of your business of these online businesses by diversifying your revenue streams as well. 
what drove you to start a fund investing in these types of businesses and what you guys are doing at Web Street? Was there a legislative change that made it possible when it previously hadn't been? Like what what got you there? A little bit, but that wasn't the main thing. So prior to founding Web Street with my business partners, Justin Cook and Joe McNaughty, I worked at Empire Flippers. So that's a online business broker that was founded by uh, Justin and Joe. And what they do is they sell online businesses, websites, Amazon FBA businesses, SaaS businesses, anything that makes money online. And one question that we kept getting over and over again over the years was, hey, I, I think uh, a 2, 3, 4x annual multiple in profit is really, really attractive. I want to buy these businesses. I have capital to deploy. I want to invest in them passively. How about I buy one of these businesses and you guys run it for me? And the answer was like, no, get out of here. We, we don't do that. Or like, can you match me up with somebody where it's like, well, not really. I can't really vouch for them because I don't know how, how they would be as an operator. So we heard this question over and over again for many, many years. So we had all this unmet demand of people that wanted to passively participate in these online businesses without having the skill set or without having the, the time to actively manage them. And we already had an audience of people that know how to manage these businesses because we had a marketplace where these businesses are being bought and sold. And like I mentioned earlier, a lot of the sellers are repeat sellers. So they'll go out, build one of these businesses, sell it. They might buy one, grow it and sell it. Oftentimes, we saw the same assets being bought and sold multiple times, and we could see exactly how it was doing. So we had this built-in market demand of people that wanted to invest passively. We had this large audience of people that knew how to run these businesses. And then we had this light bulb moment. I don't think you can even call it a light bulb moment. It was kind of like, all right, we finally decided to do what people were asking us for years to do. And then we launched Web Street, or formerly Empire Flippers Capital, standalone company. Initially shared a lot of the resources with Empire Flippers, but now completely standalone, no shared resources and buys businesses from anywhere, including uh, other brokers. So explain exactly how it works from the investor side, maybe as the, the portfolio manager or the basically the property manager, if you will, of the asset that you guys buy. Break down that process for us. Yeah, so it's fairly simple. When we designed this, uh, we you know we rolled it out in phases and we tested through it. And one thing that we wanted to do from the beginning was try to line up everyone's interest. We had two goals: go out and find the best portfolio managers that we can find, and then line up the investors' interest, the portfolio managers' interest, and our interest. What we do is we we go out and raise money from investors. Mostly accredited investors. We recently opened up a crowdfunding test that we might continue. Mostly accredited investors, so high net worth individuals looking to deploy capital. Our average investment is probably fifty to one hundred grand from the accredited investors. So first, we go out and we find portfolio managers. We look at the track record of building these businesses, buying them, growing them, running them, and selling them. And we look at a lot of portfolio managers, and we admit a very small percentage. Once we have our portfolio managers, we'll go to our investors and say, hey, these are the four funds that we have open right now. We have these four experienced portfolio managers. You can invest in these four different funds for, let's say, 50 grand. They'll get you a stake in each fund, and each fund is going to buy multiple assets. And the funds are different. So one might be a content fund, one might be an FBA fund, one might be a Kindle fund, one might be a software fund. And then the investors give us the money. Then the operators or the portfolio managers go out and buy these businesses. We, we of course, have oversight. We make sure that whatever investment criteria they laid out to investors, that they will buy those businesses. So if there's a guy that has uh, 
a deep experience in content businesses and he comes across a e-commerce FBA business and he you know, wants, wants to try it out, we, we would veto something like that. And we, we have a whole investments team that helps with the due diligence process and so on. And then once these businesses are bought on a regular quarterly basis, the profits are split with the investors. So the investors keep two thirds of the profits and one third goes to the operator and ourselves. So you know the attractive thing here is if you buy a business at 3x annual, if you get to keep 100% of the profits, you would be making, what is that, 33% a year. If you give up one third of the profits, you're making about a little bit over 20% a year, which are still really, really attractive uh, returns for, for a passive investment. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. 
What are you seeing as the best opportunities today? Both maybe what you think personally, do you think content sites, affiliate sites, maybe SaaS tools, Kindle, D2C e-commerce, FBNA, like FBNA, do you like those personally? And also what are you seeing for investor appetite? Like what are investors coming to you saying they want? Which type of these assets do they want most? Good question. I, I get this question all the time, or I used to get it all the time when I when I would um, talk to investors more. And the answer is always don't try to pick a winner. So if you're a passive investor looking to spend a certain percentage of your net worth in in online businesses, I definitely would not try to pick a winner like content or FBA or or SaaS or whatever the case is, because they all have different risk factors. And you know we we've, we've covered a lot of these risk factors already. So I think I think the key here would be diversification. I'm very bullish on on FBA. That's that's actually my my background. I went and started multiple Amazon FBA businesses, and I, and I have some um, good experience with 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 that. And I'm I'm very bullish on that business model as well. SaaS, of course, with the reoccurring revenue stream. So I I would say if you're if if you're looking to do this as a passive investment, try to get exposure to multiple different business models. If you're looking to get into this and uh, buy these businesses or build these businesses from scratch yourself, my advice would be the opposite because somebody that's good at running an e-commerce FBA business, it's a completely different skill set than running a content business. So I, I would say if you're looking to build them, run them yourself, see what skill set you have compared to what's required to run these businesses uh, effectively. If you're looking to passively invest... You should be monetization agnostic. You should be just spreading out um, your investments over multiple different managers, multiple different monetizations and risk factors and so on. I personally think content sites and affiliate sites are like a good place to start. You know, I'm not saying you have to do that like as an investor, but I'm saying if you're interested in starting one of these businesses, I think that's a good place to start because then you can, for me at least, it opened the world of like all of these opportunities. I had no idea of what was possible, the monetization strategies, how you can get traffic, like so much stuff that I learned from doing those two things that are, you can scale them to be massive. I I have a friend of mine who sold a a content site for a million dollars. So like it can get big, but if even it's just a stepping stone, you can learn so much there and maybe you go do e-com and and D2C stuff and you can take some of your SEO knowledge and traffic acquisition and drive that to an e-com product and, and do a D2C model. So I think you can learn a lot from content and affiliate sites that you can use in these I, these other models. I completely agree. I, I think the the skill set that you learn in in running content businesses and and exactly like you said, you might continue running content businesses. And there are some very large content businesses like we like we talked about with Red Ventures earlier. But even if you decide to pivot in a different direction, that'll be a useful skill set. I know a lot of people personally that run um, service agencies. And that get a lot of their clients through content marketing from their past experience uh, running content sites. Absolutely. I've seen that as well. I'm curious. Tell me a bit about your FBA experience. What have you done personally? What, what were the products? What did you sell? How did, how did that go? Just like tell, tell me a bunch more about that. I'm interested. Joined Empire Flippers. My plan was always to go out and start my own business. Really enjoyed what I was doing with Empire Flippers. I ended up staying there for uh, much longer than expected. Eventually left, started my own Amazon FBA business. This was in 2016, I think. Launched the product. It just did really, really well out of the gate. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. This is so easy. And then the product got absolutely crushed like uh, a few months later. And then it went from doing really well to losing money consistently. And then it launched many, many more different products after that, probably making every mistake in, in the book that you can think of. 
And then after a few iterations, after a few tries, we finally managed to figure it out. So leftover today, I have two Amazon FBA businesses, one in the kitchen supply niche. So boring products that restaurants buy. Um, and then one in the fitness niche, uh, like the medical device fitness niche. That's the bigger one of the businesses. I'm not, I'm not actively involved in, in either one anymore. I have a business partner that runs all the day-to-day operations and we have a team in place. So for me at this point, I'm more of a uh, advisor or strategic investor. I, I still own half of the businesses, but now, now I'm passively involved in it. It's also a good way for me to get an inside look at latest Amazon FBA trends and that knowledge is helpful for the fund. But I would say you know, when we launched these businesses, we launched them quite a few years ago. The market has definitely changed a lot. It has become more competitive. Specifically, it has become more difficult to launch new products without an existing audience. So more difficult in terms of, let's say you have whatever product on Amazon and you're trying to get it to rank, just like you're trying to get your website to rank in Google. Of course, Amazon's algorithm is differently. Yeah, it works differently. You're trying to get the reviews. You're trying to get traffic to your Amazon page and so on. That part has become more difficult than it was five or six years ago. It's become more difficult to pick up reviews. So as it's gotten more difficult to launch new products, less competition has been entering the space. And as less competition enters the space, only one of these Amazon FBA businesses is actually more more valuable. One last thing I want to touch on that listeners might have picked up on is, is that Mike didn't necessarily mention the exact product or, or for either of the businesses. And one of the things that really surprised me when I got into this business was that people are very secretive and this is this is nothing like against you, Mike. This is just how the industry is. Is that like when you talk to other people, they might they'll tell you they own a content site or an affiliate site, and they'll say, okay, maybe it's in the automotive niche or it's in the home niche or the fitness niche or whatever. But they very, very, very rarely disclose what the actual website is. And it sounds like it's the same for FBA businesses and things like that. Just because, and for listeners, it's because there's so much competition, and a lot of people have seen. It's not that hard to just literally copy and paste somebody's blog post onto their own website and essentially steal everything that somebody else done. And I like to think people wouldn't do that, but people do do that. And a lot of people have had that experience. So that's why it's very, very surprising to me when I came into this world and this industry to see how kind of close knit it is in terms of like what people are actually working on. Well, in, in fairness, some of the FBA guys are, are a little nuts. So they won't even share what industry it's in. It's like, all right. There's millions of products in the kitchen that you won't even tell me what what industry it's in. So some some guys definitely take it too far, but we we even do the same precautions in in our funds. So as as an investor, all the assets being bought, you have the website URLs, you have the link to the Amazon storefront, so you, you can see the products, you can see everything that's going on. But with new prospective investors, we have all of our previous investor reports, and we'll uh, drop redacted versions. So we'll have all the all the financial statements, and we'll just say. Content asset one, content asset two, FBA asset one. It'll have all the relevant financial data, but it won't have the information that identifies it. That was really, really interesting to me when I when I came into this industry. So I wanted to make sure we we mentioned that to people that are listening that are maybe just hearing about some of these ideas for the first time. Mike, I really enjoyed our conversation. Like I said, this has been a topic of mine that I've been researching for the last year pretty heavily, and I've been really passionate about it. So I really enjoyed chatting about it. And uh, I hope the audience enjoyed it as well. For anybody that's interested in learning a little bit more about your fund, what you guys got going on, more about these types of businesses, where can people go to find you and, and follow along? Yeah. Go to our website, webstreet.co. So webstreet.co. 
if you're interested in being an investor, if you're an accredited investor, high net worth individual, like I mentioned earlier, we're testing through a crowdfunding option, depending on when this gets published, that may be open by then or not. And then, of course, we have a two-sided marketplace. So we're always looking for very experienced portfolio managers that are running their own portfolio of, of online businesses and that are looking to run a investment fund through, through WebStreet. Or if you just want to generally learn about the industry, uh, we've been publishing more and more content on how it works. I'd say check out our blog. Yeah, definitely. I recommend people listening, go check out WebStreet. Even if you're not an accredited investor, you're not going to be a portfolio manager, you're not going to make any investments, but you're interested in learning more, go check out their website. They have some cool info there. Go check out Empire Flippers as well. A lot of cool... Just see what the opportunities are. One thing that I recommend to people that are looking... So so oftentimes I talk to people that are looking to build their own online businesses or that are just starting out or, or that are somewhere along in the process and they have no interest in investing simply because they get a much better ROI on putting it into their own business. And if you have the opportunity to do that, you should definitely do that. The only time you should think about investing is if you want to diversify or you can get a better ROI or, 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 you, or, you, or you want to, to be passive. You can't deploy. Yeah, exactly. Or you want to be passive or you gotten to the point where you can't deploy any more capital in, into your business. Even, even those people, what I would recommend for those Go to our past investment deals. Those are obviously no longer open for investment because they're closed. And then go to each investment deal page and you can see a interview with the operator, with the professional portfolio manager, and we'll ask them a number of questions. What type of assets are you looking to buy? Once you buy these assets, what strategy are you going to use to grow them? What strategy will you implement early on? What strategy will you implement later? What type of risks do you look out for? So depending on whatever you're interested in, whatever flavor or monetization of online businesses, you might be able to find some interesting info in, in there. I like to do the same thing. I'll go to Empire Flippers or I'll go to other brokerages or marketplaces that sell these businesses and I'll go on there and I'll see like what businesses are selling, how much they're selling for, what they're doing right, how they're making their money, what they're, you know, and just kind of do like a autopsy, if you will. But even though they're still alive, you know, it's still a business, it's still it's still working. But like I try to dissect it as much as I can to learn from a business that's being sold. I could see how much it's selling for and, and just learn from it. So yeah, go to your website check all that out. And uh, yeah, Mike, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Great talking today. Bye-bye. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin. And every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.